Last week, we saw probably one of the greatest principles that you're ever going to have in your life as a Christian to, to really use as a guideline for your life. And we talked about and focused on uh, uh, the great verse in Romans chapter 14, verse 7. I told you that uh, this whole book, uh, this whole chapter here is built around four or five great principles. And this was the first one we looked at. And it simply said that no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. We talked about the concept of somebody's always watching our lives. We tied that principle into a complete, I hope, understanding of our liberty in Christ. How that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, that when we got saved, that we're not our own. We're bought with a price. And we're to glorify God with our bodies. I talked about seeing ourselves as God sees us, a living sacrifice. We talked about when we went through Romans chapter 12. Realizing that uh, we have a need to put God's call in your life and my life as Christians, as fathers, as mothers, as parents, uh, over other things in our lives that maybe, as the Bible says, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient or edifying. And then I talked about also understanding because of the cause of Christ, which is without a doubt the most important thing in your life and my life today. If you're a child of God, I, on, on no uncertain terms, if you're saved this morning, the most important aspect of your life and my life is understanding the cause of Christ in your life and what we have to do to preserve that and protect that in our testimony. And therefore, because of that, even though there are things that other people may do, there are things that we may want to take a license to do, and there may be things that there's no law on it in the Bible, we abstain from certain areas for that protection of the cause of Christ. You also remember I told you that this great chapter, as I said, is, is built around four or five, I call these standalone principles. Verses that you could take out by yourself and basically preach a whole message around. But they're great truths when you put together in this chapter, they really make chapter 14 and 15 the key to not only our walk with God, but our relationship with each other. And that's, that's what we've been talking about in chapter 14. Now today I want to move on in this chapter, and I want to look at another of the principles this chapter is built around. <coughs> And I want to begin reading in Romans chapter 14, and we'll pick it up again in verse 7 and move a little bit farther down in our, our text here. It says, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou shed it not, thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, so that every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, uh, we need you today, Father, through your Spirit to speak to us. Lord, we need the, the young men and young women in this church that are, are baby Christians. They need to be encouraged and edified by what they hear today. Many of them don't understand uh, the great consequences of what they do in their life, the liberties that they take, how it may affect somebody else. Maybe many of them don't want to, 
Maybe they want their life the way they want it, even more than what you want. But Lord, uh, through this time today and through this series on, on chapter 14, may you speak to all of our hearts. May you help us who are older Christians to understand the tremendous responsibility that we have to, to help <coughs> your people. And the folks, Lord, that are in the process, that are in the mid-range, who are actually seeing you use their lives in great ways, like we talked about before the offering when we prayed, may this be an encouragement to them. May we leave here today a little stronger, a little closer, a little more in love with you, and a little more in love with each other. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, last week, you remember that the issue we talked about uh, in that particular problem they were having in that church was the issue of special days. And we learned from Colossians 2 that as far as, you know, we as Christians looking at Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or Christmas or Easter, we know now that uh, there are no real Christian holidays. Many of them have been put in through tradition over the years, and they have worked their way into Christianity. But in actuality, uh, they're really, they're not recognized by God. They don't mean anything more than, than what we make them to be, and they're certainly not found in the Bible. <coughs> there is no Christmas in the Bible. And, of course, the idea that Christ was born on December 25th uh, is ludicrous when you understand the Bible and know exactly when he was born and how it ties in not only to the first coming but the second coming. Uh, the concept of Easter, even though you find the word Easter in the Bible in the book of Acts, Easter was never celebrated as a holy day. Uh, it wasn't until the third and the fourth century that all that came into being. And, and, and we talked about that. But I did tell you this. I did tell you that there are two days in the Bible <coughs> which are holy days, and they're very special days. One of them is the day of the Lord. The other one is called the day of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, when I begin to teach people the Bible, I try to bake, break the Bible down in, a, in, in natural breakdowns. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 talks about the fact that we're to study to show ourselves approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And then it says this, we're to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, we've heard that verse many, many times, and we're all familiar with it for the most part. But that's exactly what the plan that I follow or the pattern I follow. And I can safely say that if you want to begin to learn your Bible and you want to start at the basics and you want to divide it out in its basic form and then build upon it, then you start with two concepts. Your whole Bible is built around two concepts. And, you know, my job is to make the Bible that looks complex show you how simple it really is. It's not hard. It's ludicrous. We're talking about the judgment seat of Christ here today. It's ludicrous to think that God would write a book that was so hard to understand that would take you studying Greek and Hebrew to learn the language, to unlock the Bible, <clears throat> and to spend 20, 30, 40 years in some seminary someplace and make the Bible so hard that the common ordinary man couldn't understand it, and then that same God is going to come down and judge you by it at some point? That, that, that's ludicrous. It doesn't even make any sense. No, it's just the opposite. The Bible is not hard. The Bible is very simple. But you've got you've to get the divisions in the right place, and you've got to get that thing laid out the way God intended it to lay out. Now, you take your Bible, 31,171 verses, 66 books, 1,189 chapters. And you're going to find that as you look at it, it's a very complicated thing. But in reality, it's not because the whole Bible is written about two people groups. 
The first people group we know is the nation of Israel, and that'll bring you through the Old Testament. The second people group will be the church, and that'll bring you through the New Testament. Now, your whole Bible just opens up around that. And if you want to learn the Bible, the first thing you do, and people make a lot of mistakes, and you're going to have to bear with me. I'm going to have to blow my nose a lot today. <laughs> Here, would you hold that for me? Well, <laughs> the Bible is built around two concepts. It's built around, first of all, God dealing with the nation of Israel and what he was trying to accomplish with them. When I teach you the Bible, I'm going to start with that aspect and I'm going to show you what he was doing with the nation of Israel and why. And then as we move into the second half of the Bible, we know it as the New Testament, I'm going to show you how God changed from what he was doing with the Old Testament nation of Israel and now what he's doing with the New Testament church. And the Bible is simply falls down around those two concepts. Now, within those two concepts, you'll also find the two days in the Bible that you got to really focus on. The first one is the day of the Lord. We talked about this last week, but not in the detail. I'm going to lay it out for you today. There's only two days in your Bible that are really holy days and special days. And it's just like God's people to get them all backwards and screwed up. But the first day that is on God's calendar is the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord will always be in direct reference to the nation of Israel. That's their day. And that's the day when Jesus Christ, you've been on Bible study and you've been through it many, many times and it's on the chart up there. And that's the day that Jesus comes back and takes the nation of Israel to him as his people. And they go into the millennial reign together and they live together for a thousand years. Now, the second day in your Bible is the day of Christ. Sometimes it's called the day of Jesus Christ. That day will be the rapture of the church. And that day is for me and you. You see, the Bible's built around two people groups, the Jew, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the church, the body of Christ in the New Testament. So they both have their respective days. And it's the only two days in the Bible that are holy, if we're going to call them holy days. We don't worship them days because we don't know what day that's going to be. But we know in the Bible that the Bible is built around those two days. And it's just like God's people, as I said, to get hung up on every other day and miss the two central days in the Bible. Now, that day of Jesus Christ deals with the rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ, which is what Romans chapter 14 is moving into now, and dealing with all of the rewards and things that are going to take place. And for you to basically begin to understand the Bible, <coughs> you simply need to understand how God looks at Israel and how Christ looks at the church how that God has his people, the nation of Israel, that he called out in the Old Testament. He did everything in the Old Testament for them to bring them to be his people and how Christ wanted a bride for his church. And that's you and me. And at the, when you start to rightly divide your Bible, you start with those two things. Now, as a Christian, if there's any day, like I said, that, that we should regard, it should be the day of Jesus Christ, uh, short term, and then we need to understand the day of the Lord long term. You see, the day of the Lord doesn't directly affect me. I need to know where it's at in my Bible, and I need to know how it affects Israel. And obviously, it goes into the whole scheme of God's plan. But the day of the Lord does not directly affect me. But the day that does affect me is the day of Jesus Christ. It's the day that he comes back and takes his bride away and then at that point, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, we go to what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. 
And there the church is purged of any spot or wrinkle, and she's made worthy to be his bride. And then at that point, it becomes a great, uh, it becomes a great thing for us uh, when we become one with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I told you earlier how the Bible is not a hard book. We know in the Bible that the number seven is the number of perfection. God does everything by sevens. You see it. I mean, everything he does, he does by sevens. All the Old Testament law was multiples of sevens. Uh, you know, uh, everything he ever did, he does by seven because God's perfect. Seven is the number of perfection. All angels have seven letters in their name because they're perfect, you see. And the word perfect itself has seven letters in its name, in its, in its, <laughs> in its title. So in the Bible, we find, again, a very simple pattern. And one of the upper level ways, once you begin to learn the Bible and you begin to get a handle on the, the rightly dividing it from the Old Testament to the New Testament, then at some point when you start to move up the ladder a little bit, then you start into the most unique study series or what I call a, a biblical systematic study. And that systematic study is the study of the patterns of sevens that God has put in his Bible. You're going to find that there's seven, when you start coming through the Bible, there's seven mysteries. And those Bible mysteries are, are, will unlock things and give them to you that nobody else has. And when you go out and talk to people, they're going to scratch your head. And this is why people have so many issues with the things that they have in life and not knowing the Bible and not knowing God because nobody ever sat down <coughs> and systematically laid out for them how the seven mysteries go into their life. The Bible talks about, the Bible talks about seven baptisms. Mm, that sounds confusing right off the bat. A seven baptism? Gee, I was baptized. I hope I got the right one. I do too. Because the Bible distinctly lays out what baptism is and then shows you seven distinct different baptisms in the Bible. And I can honestly say that if you were baptized in our church and uh, you have been baptized in probably in most Baptist church, you probably have the right baptism. It's just that simple. We know that the Bible lays out that there's seven resurrections. We know the Bible lays out that in church history, we're studying it on Tuesday night, there's seven periods of church history. We know that the Bible says back there in the Old Testament that there's seven marriages in the Bible. We know that there's seven barren women in the Bible. We know that the Bible is built on seven pillars back in the Old Testament. We've talked about that on Thursday night. There's literally hundreds of patterns of sevens in your Bible. And what it does, it helps you isolate the truth it helps you identify what he's trying to do and then apply it. And then in time, it's the way to rightly divide it. Now, when I say all that, I say that to say this. In your Bible also, there's seven judgments. There's seven judgments. Now, in those seven judgments, three of those apply to you and me. Now, I'm going to help you today. It doesn't mean that just because I got a, can't talk very well and I, I got, uh, I got uh, you know, speech problems that I'm not going to preach to you. I'm just kind of building myself up. I'm trying to get, if you don't mean to be gross, but I'm trying to get all the mucus out before I really go at it because the front row is going to get slithered if I don't. So <laughs> This is going to be like that guy that used to kill the food. Everybody in the front row wore raincoats here before too much longer. <laughs> For me, I'm not very smart. I know you think I am. Barb Christie thinks I'm the smartest man in the world. She's sorely mistaken. I'm about as dumb as you can get. I really am. I had to self-learn a lot of things. I'm not naturally smart. I, I, I really not. I never have been. 
I mean, I, when I went to school, I didn't get good, good grade. You'd think, well, he really knows the Bible. He must have really been a, you know, he must have a, somebody said, I'd like to test your IQ one time. And I said, why is that? He says, because I think you'd have, your IQ would be up there on a genius level. My IQ would probably be about 37. <laughs> what people mistake is the fact that they think that you have to be smart to learn the Bible. And the truth of the matter is, the dumber you are, the better chance you have to learn the Bible. So dumbness is a good thing in a certain, in a certain way. And, uh, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, I, was, I had a tough time getting out of school. And uh, I was in the sixth grade so long that the kids brought me the apple. They thought I was the teacher. It was not an easy road for me because I'm not naturally, you know, my teachers used to tell my parents that I'm a, that I'm a daydreamer that I'd look out the window, and I would, and I'd think of all kinds of things that I wanted to do in life, and, and none of it had anything to do with school. But I got through. I would never say this in front of your kids because I know you want better standards for your kids, and probably most of you have, and I do too. But you get upset when your kids get a D. I was thrilled. Oh, I was happy. I was happy when I got a D. And I, I, I'm telling you, when it comes to understanding the Bible, what I've had to do is I've had to break complex things down in very basic ideas for me to grasp. And I passed a lot of them along to you. You remember one of the greatest little things I gave you years ago was something that I learned, and it was the uh, putting it all together, uh, simply called faith, fact, and feeling. Remember that? How that your, your faith has to be built on the right facts, and then when you have the right facts, it produces the right feeling. Most churches today, they have faith, they're saved, but they have no facts. So their feelings run wherever they want to go. Your emotions, your feelings, and everything about you needs to be based on the facts. So it's faith, fact, and feeling. That is one of the greatest little things that helped me understand uh, great concepts in the Bible. Now, I'm going to give you another one today. These three judgments that you and I are faced with, uh, I basically break them down like this. And you're going to go out of here because my goal now, we've got a lot of new people in this church. And even us old ones, it, it stands again that we need to go through this material. But I would do you younger Christians a great injustice if, and now we have the opportunity here in Romans chapter 14 who brought up this great doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ. There's seven judgments in your Bible. Three of them apply to you. I've broken them down like this. Now, a lot of people have tough times with their losing their salvation. A lot of people have tough times understanding how it all works. You've heard me say how important it is that you, you have the right view of God, and then you have the right view of how God looks at you, and then you have the right view of how you should look at each other. All right? Right here is how you learn it. A basic little thing. It's called sinner, son, and servant. Now, I want you to think of those three things because I'm going to explain them and show you how this thing works. And if you get it down, you'll never have an issue again with your salvation. Sinner, son, and servant. Now, here's how it works. And these three judgments <coughs> apply to us. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, and I don't know if you know this or not, but he was a sinless man. And because he was a sinless man and he died uh, for the world, the Bible says, what he did at that point when he died on the cross, every man, woman, and child on this planet, at that point, I say children, you know, in the sense of accountability-wise, but everybody on planet Earth was then judged as a sinner. 
a holy, righteous man had died for the whole world who was in sin. And when he did that, automatically that made everybody on this planet a sinner. When I got saved, there was a, when I got born, there was a period of time when I grew up in my life, as there was in your life, uh, that uh, I was under the blood. I didn't know the difference between right and wrong. So God kind of covered me, as Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 7 says, until I came to that point where I understood right from wrong. At that point, because Jesus died on the cross and paid the sin debt, at that point, when I broke that law, I now became a sinner. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, if I would have died in any point of that period of time, I'd have went to hell. I'd have went to hell as a guilty sinner. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he died on the cross, he judged every man and every woman on this planet from that point forward, and really from that point backwards, a guilty sinner because a righteous, holy man had died in the place of sinners. When I came to that age of accountability, at that point, I became a sinner. And if I would have died, I would have experienced the wrath of God as an unsaved man, as a sinner, by a holy God in a place called hell. But there came a day in my life, just like there came a day in in many of your lives, when you got saved. Most people don't understand what happened to them the day they got saved. This is why they have such a problem with their relationship down the line. And this is why in discipleship, when we have people work with people, we have our first lesson basically deals with what really changed about you the day you got saved. And of course, this is where people really struggle, isn't it? You see, once you got saved, when I talk about God looking at you and you looking back at God and seeing the way it really is, once you got saved, God no longer looks at you as a sinner. God now looks at you as his son. People can't get that. God doesn't look at you after you get saved as a sinner anymore. Now you're his son. You've passed from the darkness into the light. You've come from the, from the old death on your way to hell to destined to go to heaven. So at that point, when you got saved, God no longer looks at you as a sinner anymore. He did before you got saved, but the moment you get saved, he now looks at you as his son, his child. Ah, consequently... He doesn't deal with your sins anymore the way he did before you were saved. You see, most people make a terrible mistake. Most people think that when you get saved, you don't sin anymore. And, of course, we know that's not true. The difference is once you get saved, you have the ability now to get as far from sin in your life as you humanly can, where before you didn't. So once you get saved, God no longer looks at you as a sinner And God no longer looks at your sin that you get into as a sinner. He now looks at you as a son and the disobedience that we get into as children. Most of you have children. And most of you can understand the concept that when your children do something wrong, are they still not your child? Now, I got got neighbors that across the street that raising their kids are going to be, by the time they're 18 or 20, they're going to all be in prison probably someplace. And they're cute little guys and gals, but boy, I'll tell you what, you got to hear the mouth on them. And they'll get out there and they'll, they'll say everything and do everything. It's a wild place over there. But you know what I don't do? I don't go across the street and tell them to shut up. I don't go across the street and discipline them. 
Now, I don't really need to in this particular case because I just walk Buddy down the street and they're gone, man. They don't want anything to do with him. But I don't go across the street and discipline them. You know why? They're not my kids. They don't belong to me. And before you got saved, you didn't belong to God. John chapter 8, verse 44 says, Year of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers you will do. Once you got saved, now you become a child of God through a new birth. Now, you deal differently with your children when they do things wrong than you would never think about going across the street and whipping the neighbor's kid. You may like to, but you won't do that. And the reason is because they're not your child. So after you get saved, you're now a son, a child of God. And God deals with you as any father deals with his children. It doesn't mean you get away with sin. It means you now have the ability to live a life as far from sin as you can actually get as a human being. You'll never be perfect, but you can be a lot better than we are. But when we do sin, God doesn't deal with us as a sinner because he doesn't look at us as a sinner anymore. He looks at us now as his son, and he deals with us as a father dealing with his son, just like you as parents deal with your children. No matter what your child may do, at the end of the day, they're still your child. And of course, that's the great contempt of sinner. You see, once you get saved, you become God's child. You become God's son. So God deals with your sin issues you have right down here on earth. Ah, but there's three parts to this, sinner, son, and servant. God will judge you as an unsaved man before you get saved. The moment you get saved, God judges you in your everyday life as his child. But at the judgment seat of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, and this is really important, (coughs) at the judgment seat of Christ, and most people don't understand this, at the judgment seat of Christ, God does not judge you for the sins you did before you were saved. They're under the blood. And I'll tell you something else, and most people don't know this. God does not judge you for the sins that you did after you got saved. Most people don't understand that because those are under the blood. Hey, right now, if you sin and you do something wrong, here's what happens. Either you come to Sunday morning and you hear get preaching and you get under conviction so you get it right with God or you don't get it right with God and you go on about your life and God comes down somehow, some way, some shape, some form and deals with you and chastises you and fixes it here. So the thing I want you to remember about your three judgments, sinner, son, and servant, before you were saved, you were judged as an unsaved man. Once you got saved, now you're judged as a child of God, his son. But when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, now you're not judged for your sin before you were saved or your sin after they were saved. Those are all taken care of. What you're judged for, and I will be judged for at the judgment seat of Christ, is is what we did in our attitude with understanding the call that God has for you. And did you fulfill it or did you not fulfill it? It's just that simple. It's the concept of sinner, son, and servant. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we're not judged for our sin, but we're judged as a servant. Here's the bottom line, folks. Here's what the judgment seat of Christ is going to be about. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to take this thing apart. I want everybody understanding where this thing is at and where your relationship is to it. And I want you to understand, at the judgment seat of Christ, 
we will all stand before the Lord and it won't be about our sin. It won't be about being a son, but it'll about being a servant. God has a plan for every one of you in this room if you're saved. I don't care when you figure it out. Some of you come into this church late in life, midlife, early in life, whatever. I don't care when you figure it out, but at some point in your life, you better figure out what that plan is and you better fulfill it because that's what the judgment seat of Christ is for. We get the idea that once we get saved that our goal is to have children and raise kids. No, that's not right. That is a product of that. But we get the idea that our job is to get a good career and make money. No, that's not it either, though that is obviously important. No, no. You have a, God has a plan for you and has given you everything you need to fulfill that plan. He's given you the Holy Spirit when you got saved. He's given you the Word of God. And He's given you the local church. And everything you need is found in those three. The Holy Spirit of God you got the day you got saved, that's your guide. He's going to guide you to all truth. The Word of God, it's the road map. It's God's mind. It shows you what God wants you to do. The local church, it's the vehicle by which you get to where God wants you to go to do what God wants you to do. It's just that simple. And someday you'll give an account at the judgment seat of Christ for the job that you've done as a steward, as a servant. You may have went out and got drunk last night. You'll never, never give an account of that at the judgment seat of Christ because God will probably kill you this afternoon and it'll be taken care of. You see, you may have done something in your life down the line this last week that you just would not confess. You know what? That's not going to come up at the judgment seat of Christ. God is going to take care of that here. But we'll we'll come up with simply this. He'll say to me, Bob, I gave you my spirit. I gave you my mind. And I gave you a church and a pastor and people to help you figure out why and what I wanted you to do as my servant. Now, why did not you do that? And that'll be the question. That'll be the question in general. And if there's any day as a Christian we should be focused on, want a holy day, it ought to be that day. Now, if you haven't picked this thing up yet in Romans chapter 14 and 15, the underlying theme in all of this is our personal responsibility and accountability to God after we get saved. That's really what chapter 14 and 15 really is all about. And hence all the verses on liberty and not being a stumbling block to younger Christians. And your development as a Christian and the development of our church And it's fulfilling our mission. And just as this church has a mission, you as a member of this church have signed on to help fulfill that mission. It's based on uh, getting to this point in your life where we take personal accountability and responsibility, not only for ourselves, but for our, 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 our ministry that God has given us. You know, this church has been a process. It's been a work as I've watched this thing from day one. I've told you this New Year's Eve when we had our laid it out, and I told you that uh, I had watched this church and, and put the things as I thought this church needed it before it to help it grow. And now I felt comfortable with where people were at that we had to take this thing to the next level. And I told you that night, New Year's Eve, that we were going to build everything that we did this year and from this point on on taking things personal as far as our accountability and our responsibility. Not only accountability for ministry, accountability for what we do, accountability for who we work with, and all of the things that go along with that. I knew at that point, if this thing ever got off the ground, 
and I was, I'm still going to do it sometime in June. I, June would be the halfway mark. I was going to kind of give you a State of the Union address and show you how things are moving and where it's all at. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I've watched this thing grow to the point where since, even since New Year's Eve, how the, and maybe you don't see it. If you're inside ministry, you're seeing how this thing is totally redefining our church. You realize since New Year's Eve, since New Year's Eve, and I know we got a lot of people out of town today and a lot of people sick, but, but uh, we got a crowd up here. We got, the, we got the cheap seats in the back are just about all full. We got everything around that we need. You realize that since, the, since New Year's Eve, 18 people have joined this church. I don't ever remember in four months' time 18 people joining this church. You realize that out of those 18, 10 of those have gotten saved? I don't even remember a, a three-month period where, where people got saved. But you know why that's happening? I'll tell you why that's happening. It's because you in your prayer groups are beginning to understand the personal responsibility and accountability, and it's making a difference in your life. On top of that, God at the right time and His timing. We went down to Wichita last week. Our first group went down there. Three families showed up. Over 15 people came wanted to hear the Word of God. They had the greatest time in their life down there. I got emails from almost every one of them this week thanking and thanking and thanking. They want to go rent a building someplace because they want to start a church. And they are absolutely have sold out to this thing. And 15 people, and they know more people, and the word will spread because God gave us a place. And I'm going to say this, and, and this is, I'll take the flack for this later, but my little munchkins back here, Amy and, and Aaron, they went down last week, and it was your first week. And they ever told anybody about your testimony, wasn't it, in any group situation where you ever laid it out. And I talked with them last week, and they are scared to death, you know. But you know what? I've watched God in your heart. And I watched God, and then, what, two weeks ago on a Thursday night, your sister came, and she got saved, didn't she? And then we come to the place where you guys go down there, and, and, and after, after it was over, I, I, they, 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 did a, they did a wonderful job. Had never done it before. But you see, we've got to have scenarios where people, are, it's like I said last week, you're almost forced into doing it because the fear will keep you back from doing it. But when you step out and you do it one time, one time, and I know what everybody felt because I felt the same thing. I'll make a fool out of myself. I'll forget. I'll write down 28 pages of notes for a two-minute testimony. You know, <clears throat> and you know what? God just, I'll tell you right now, and I wasn't there, but I guarantee you, God just came down and spoke through you, didn't he? And he used the fact that you're his and he's in you. And he had something that he, you had come to the point that you wanted to say. And you probably sound like you've done it a thousand times in your life. That's what I'm talking about what I'm talking about. That single concept of you grasping the accountability and the responsibility for people has made the difference and will continue to make the difference. And God will always be there. I'm telling you, whenever we step through and we say we're going to the next level, God will always meet you with opportunities on the next level. Now, I'm going to tell you something here. I'm going to tell you something. And I had no idea this was down here, right down the road, right behind Gates Barbecue, there's a little place called Mother's Refuge. And it's a place where unwed mothers go who have no place else to go. And God has opened that door wide open to you ladies. 
God has opened that door wide open. They, they, they want us to come in. They're going to have an open house June the 6th. And they want us to come down. One of our gals have already been to church. And there's nine or ten gals down there. And they got to stay for a year. What an impact. You can go down and have Bible studies. You can go down and visit them. You can go down and do whatever you need to do. You can sign them out and take them out someplace. You can do whatever you need to do. God is opening the doors everywhere we go. My goal is to work our way in. Let them see we're real. Let some of you ladies go down there and, uh, and, and just lay it out and, 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 and work it all out. We're going to talk about it, and uh, we're going to put it all down. I got Tammy going to in charge of it. She's ran a ministry like this before, and she's going to help coordinate it. And we're going to take that thing and work, just go down there and love them without anything back. And you'll watch God give us that as a ministry. And there's other places just like that. I've already heard this morning of another uh, a situation uh, with ladies that, that uh, two of them are going to come to church next week. And there, there's, there's a number of ladies there with no church, no Bible, no preaching. And yet it's, when you, I'm telling you, when you step out, kids, and I'm using them as an example for almost everybody here, when you step out and say, I'm going through, I'm going up to the next level, God will always give you on that level the open doors to help you grow. But we had to get there. And that's why you're seeing what you're seeing. And that's why you're seeing the spirit of this church redefined in an absolute concept. It started with a little troop group down in Warrensburg. And it started with a couple of those kids coming up and one of those guys getting saved. And uh, it, just, it just never ends because God has given you the opportunity. And I don't care where you're at as a young lady. If your life is as, is as clean as it can be, and you're not dragging around some baggage in your life or some uh, situation, let me tell you something. There is no reason why you cannot have a part of ministering to these girls and letting God take you wherever you're at. That is just an incredible concept because God will always meet you. But along with that comes a tremendous responsibility and a tremendous accountability. You see... To me, the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ is the most neglected teaching in all the Bible. You know, I've talked a lot about 2 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I think chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, basically sums up modern-day ministries today. And it shows you really what ministries uh, should not be, and then shows you what they should be. And Paul writing there in chapter 4, verse 1, He defines ministry by saying this, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. All of these are concepts that we find in churches today. But I think the greatest tragedy in churches is the handling of, of the Word of God deceitfully. Personally, I think the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ is probably the greatest single doctrine in your life and my life throughout the entire Bible. I'd preach on it every week. I'd put everything else aside. I'd preach on it every week as the main theme and try to work things in if I could. But as it is, I know I can't do that, but as it is, you'll see on Thursday night, one-on-one, whatever we're doing, I'm always looking for ways to inject that concept Because it's the day, it's the day, it's the special day that we need to be looking through. And preachers today don't preach on it. 
I guarantee you, you could go to just about any Baptist church in this city, and they may be good Baptist churches. I guarantee you, you in a year's time, you'll probably never hear a sermon that is worth anything on the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I understand why that is. I understand that most Christians, most churches, they're not in a negative preaching mode. We live in a world today in Christianity where everything has to be positive, and people don't like negative preaching. When I say negative preaching, I mean negative preaching that disrupts their lifestyle uh, so, uh, you know, that, that keeps them from doing what they want to do. So preachers, you know, bend to that, and they're, they tend to shy away from controversial issues that make people mad. And that's why you don't hear hard preaching today. You don't hear preaching from preachers because they're afraid that if they make people mad, they'll leave the church, and then how are we going to pay for everything? How are we going to do for all this? As a young man, as a pastor, let me tell you something. Don't ever fall into that trap where you let the fear of whether your church stays or goes, pays its bills or not, be run by what messages you preach. You preach the word of God straight, hot, and true, right across the plate, waist high, and let them swing at it, and God takes care of the rest. I've never worried about that. Obviously, my spiritual gift is making people mad. That's what I do best. But I don't care. I'm a simple guy. Tomorrow's laundry day. I've not yet figured how it ties into the Bible that Monday is laundry day, but it does. But tomorrow's laundry day, ladies. Here's what you'll do. Now think of your washing machine as a church. And you've got dirty clothes, just like some of you are dirty today. And you go in there, and you'll go in there tomorrow, and you'll open up the top of that thing, and you'll put your clothes in. You'll put the soap in. And then you turn the little button, close the lid, and it starts to fill up with what? Water. water. Now, we know that water is a type of the Word of God. And that's a picture of you and me. But you know, ladies, when you put your washing machine together, and you put your clothes in there, and that thing fills up, you know it doesn't just sit there and soak, and just because it's got soap in it, your clothes in it, and water in it, you know that doesn't get your clothes clean. Go home and look at your washing machine and open the lid. Inside, you can put my name on it, because inside there's a little instrument that beats your clothes clean, and it's called an agitator. (laughs) You don't get clean just because you come to church. You don't get clean because you carry the right Bible that's got the water or the Word of God. You get clean because you come, you sit down with dirty clothes on, and we put out the water, and then an agitator beats the dirt out of you. A nasty job, somebody's got to do it. Every washing machine needs an agitator. Every church needs somebody that will stand up and preach the unpopular message whether they like it or they don't. It doesn't mean you don't have grace. It doesn't mean you don't, you don't, you don't, you're compassionate. It doesn't mean you don't try to restore and help people. It simply means that there's a bottom line and the bottom line is truth. Because whether you realize it or not, what you do with your own life, that's you between you. I understand, and some of you young men better understand if you ever get into the ministry, not only will I give an account of judgment seat of Christ for my own life, but I will give an account for this ministry and what I preached. And I would much rather be unpopular with you than unpopular with him. And that's just where I'm at. 
I mean, seriously. I mean, come on. What would you think of me? Now, let's put this into a perspective. Say I found out there was a plan to kill you. Maybe your husband. Maybe your child. And I found out through whatever way that somebody was going to do you bodily harm. And I knew when, where, and who, and how the whole thing was going to go down. And then I just stood by and did nothing. I didn't call the police. I didn't call and warn you. I just didn't want to get involved. Afterwards, if you found out if I had all that information, would you be happy with me? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. What if God came down and told me that you're not to go on a particular trip because of some disaster that was going to happen? And God just came down and put the bug in my ear. He did that in the Old Testament. He doesn't do it today. But what if he did? And he says, you better tell that couple not to go or that family not to go because they're going to go out there and some disaster is going to befall them and, and, and half the family is going to get killed. And I'm telling you right now, you better tell them as my prophet and my servant, they better not do this because this is going to happen. And I just did nothing. Last thing you saw of me was in your driveway. Have a nice time. Right. Why, you wouldn't think much of me at all. I kept my mouth shut and never said anything, would you? No, you wouldn't. What if I told you somebody was going to burn down your house, that I had information, that while you were gone, you're going to lose everything you had, and yet I watched and I showed up when the fire department, when you called me that your house was on fire, and you're weeping and you're crying because you've lost your pictures, you've lost your pets, you've lost everything, you've lost your clothes, you have nothing but the clothes on your back, and I stand there trying to console you, and I say, oh, by the way, you know what, I did forget to tell you that two weeks ago, so-and-so told me he was going to do this. How about your children? God forbid. How about if your little child was abducted? God forbid. And kidnapped. And you know as well as I do, there's only a very small window of time when those things happen. And here I am down at the end of your street, and I saw the car. I got the license number. I got the greatest description of this guy that I ever saw. And I just didn't bother to tell anybody. When you found out that I knew all the info to keep you out of harm's way or to get your child back, would you be pleased with me? Would you be happy with me knowing that I had that information and I just kept it private when I knew that there was some disaster going to befall you? Well, let me just say something to you, my friend, and listen to me very carefully. There is coming a day in your life as a child of God where we will stand before Almighty God and give an account of every attitude we ever had. We will be held accountable for every message we ever heard. We'll be held accountable for every Bible study and every principle that was ever taught. You'll be held accountable for every one-on-one session you ever had or you could have had but didn't get it. That Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, that the judgment seat of Christ is the terror of the Lord. The Bible says the fire, the fire will burn everything you have. Every man's work will be made manifest for the day so declared. A day when the secrets of men will be revealed by Jesus Christ and we will give an account of what we did with the church God gave us, the Bible God gave us, and the Holy Spirit of God that he gave us the day we got saved. And you know what? Ignorance is no excuse. At the dread, dread judgment, not sinner, son, and servant. When you're judged as a servant, get this down. He's not going to hold you accountable for what you know or what you didn't know. He's going to hold you accountable for what you could have found out, but you were too lazy to do it. Because the light, word of God, is like a light that shineth unto every man. 
And God at some point after you got saved shows you exactly, I don't know where it was, when it was, how many times it was, but I promise you this. Just as he reveals himself to every unsaved man at some point, and that man either moves forward or backwards, after you get saved, when it comes to the plan that God has for you, he at some point will reveal that plan to you and show you what he wants you to do. Maybe not the whole thing, but he'll put everything in your life to get you going the right way, and then you will choose. And I know what people say. Some people never get it. It's going to be God's will versus your will in this life. It's going to be God's plan versus your plan. And I know what people say. Well, I'll still be saved and I'll still go to heaven. What an idiot. Let me ask you a question. If you were a man, a husband, and you went on a business trip for two days, and you came home and you drove into your block, the police were there and they met you, and the whole place was cordoned off. And you, 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 looked at your, you looked at your home, which is burnt to the ground. And you saw the coroner taking the little bodies out of your kids and your wife in and, and body bags and put them in the back of an ambulance. And you realized, and it just hits you, that everything you had, everything you had was burned up in that thing. Everything you had, every legal paper, every bank account, everything you had, you have lost, including your family. Is there anybody here that would run up and down the street giving joy and shouting because you were saved and still alive? I don't think so. I'm talking about a day where we are going to lose everything God ever had for us, all because of the attitude that we have toward what God's Son did for us on the cross. We need an agitator. In my personal life, I've looked at chapter 14 and 15 for so many years, I I basically have broken it down into five easy concepts for me. And maybe they won't work for you, but they work for me. And I try to keep these five things before me in everything that I do. I'd like to say that I always do it. I don't. I got as many problems that you have, and I make mistakes and do stupid things just like everybody else does. But that doesn't negate the fact that these five things are always on my list. The first thing I always look at is before I make a choice, before I do something, before I commit myself to something, I must consider its influence on other people. Romans 14, 7. The second thing, before I do something or commit myself to something, I make sure that what I do is not the right thing done in the wrong manner. Romans 14, 16. The third thing, before I do something or I get involved in something, I always keep before me that anything I do or say that causes a younger Christian to stumble is wrong. Romans 14, 21. The fourth one, found in Romans 14, 23, and this is the tough one. They're all tough ones. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Well, that's a rough one. But the fifth one, and this is the one that we need to be short-sighted on. As I look at what I do or what I get involved in or what do I allow in my life as my personal accountability to my God at the judgment seat of Christ, Romans 14, 12, so that everyone shall give an account of himself to God. How many of you were in the Navy? Any of you? Bob was in the Navy. You were 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 in the Navy. When you go on, when you get a leave in the Navy, you know what they call it? They call it liberty. Most of the things you find in the world today have a Bible base to them. When a ship comes into port, that sailor gets a pass and he goes on liberty. Sometimes it's a week, sometimes it's three or four days, sometimes it's 24 hours, 48 hours, depends on what 
what his what time he's got the ship in port. If he's not on a base in a ship, he's in a base, maybe it's a little longer. But he goes on liberty. When he comes back to that ship. Now he's when he goes on that when he goes on that liberty, there's no officers overlooking his shoulder. But he knows that he has a code of conduct as a military man he has sworn to. And if he's an officer, he's supposed to be an officer and a gentleman. Those are big things in the military. So there isn't anybody looking over his shoulder. His chief petty officer or whoever isn't running around to seeing what he's doing. He's pretty much on his own. He's in liberty, much like you and I are. Ah, but when he comes back to ship and he walks that gangplanks and asks permission to come aboard, he then has to give an account for that liberty. If he got into a fight, he tore up a bar, if he did something he wasn't doing, they know about it by the time he gets back to ship. And so he's free to do what he wants to do on his liberty, but at the end of that liberty, he gives an account. That's exactly what you and I are going to do. Nobody looking over your shoulder right now. You have the Word of God and the conscience of the Holy Spirit of God inside you to do what's right and live your life the way God wants you to. But when we get home to the heaven, our day, the day of Jesus Christ, we'll give an account of our liberty. We'll give an account of our liberty. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Over the next couple of weeks, I want to lay out this great doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ and our personal accountability uh, in every aspect of it for you, the day of Jesus Christ. You've heard me talk a lot of talk about perspective and purpose and passion. All of these are directly related to this great doctrine of our keeping it before us 24-7. Today, I just want to give you an outline, some background. Next week, we're going to really start going through it. And the next couple of weeks, when we're done, there won't be anything in that Bible about the judgment seat of Christ that you don't understand. You don't understand. Because verse 10 says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I heard an old preacher one time, and boy, you don't hear preaching like this anymore. He preached on the day God's people go to hell. Now, What's wrong with that picture? We know we're not going to hell. He knew that too. But it was one of those clever little things that he put out there that, that got everybody's attention and then come around and whacked them. Because his point was this. At the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible says the fire of God will try any man's work of what sort it is. And he was making the point that the fire that tries our works is the same fire that burns the unsaved people in hell. It's the fire of God's judgment. His point was, where an unsaved man dies and goes to hell, he loses his soul. And that fire is burned by that, that soul is burned by that fire for all of eternity. But he says, a Christian, fire can't get your soul. But it just gives everything else that you would have had. One of the most sobering messages I've ever heard in my life brought the reality of the point right home. This fire can't get your soul, but it can take from you everything you have except your salvation. I think the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to get into it next week, saved yet so as by the fire. You know, God's people are funny. We're always worrying about what we can't lose, our salvation, and we never spend five minutes worrying about what we can lose. Now listen, you can get saved and then crawfish away from God, and you'll lose your family. You'll lose your kids. You'll lose your wife. You'll lose your husband. You'll lose your wealth. You'll lose your health. 
You'll lose your mind. You'll lose your job. You'll lose your house. You'll lose your testimony. You'll lose your walk with God. And most important of all, you'll lose your millennial inheritance. Every decision you make and I make after we're saved impacts that day in a negative way or a positive way. And I know we don't think that way because we don't think about the judgment seat of Christ. We think about what we want to do. We as God's people aren't long-term, short-term about the judgment seat of Christ. Most of you young ones probably know nothing about it. It remains to be seen what you do with it once you learn about it. But every decision you make in life, for the time you get saved, I mean who you marry, how much debt you have, who you date, how you date, what your hobbies are, who you hang out with, how many kids you have, where you go to work, when you quit your job, when you move, how long were you engaged, why weren't you engaged, all patterns, everything that we do, every decision, every decision we make will impact that day, negative or positive, if that day isn't held up, number one. And these are all things that are good things. Most people don't, marry, don't understand that the person you marry, the person you marry, I mean, God's people are the stupidest people on this planet when it comes to finding a mate. And they don't understand that God never used the word with Adam and Eve as a help mate. Animals have mates, but that's what marriage and relationships have become today. A bunch of barnyard animals just fornicating and doing whatever they want to do. But the bottom line is simply this. God never gave Adam a help mate. He gave him a help meet. M-E-E-T. And that was so that Adam had a plan and a job that God wanted him to do. And he brought that woman to him that was going to help him fulfill that plan. Who you marry can directly impact your millennial inheritance and a judgment seat of Christ. It may strip you of everything you got because you just thought he was so handsome, he was perfect, and you found, took no time to find out what the bottom line was. And you committed yourself long before you should. And then you'll stand there and scratch your head and wonder what happened. And that's exactly what happens. Every decision we make after salvation will either make you or break you up against that day. That's why on Sunday morning, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, certainly on Thursday, everything we do one-on-one, I keep bringing you back to Bible principles to make, help you make the right decisions. Because they're crucial. Hey, listen. I know he's a loving God. I know he's full of goodness, full of mercy. I know he's a friend of sinners. I know that Jesus is the lover of my soul. I know that he's the friend that sticketh closer to the brother. I get all that. But he also is a holy God that won't tolerate us departing from the truth to do our own thing. He told you last week he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And my dear friend, my dear saved brethren, you do not want the land on the side that carries the weight of his chastisement or his judgment. There was a great warning given in Romans chapter 11. I don't know if you picked it up when we came through or not. Down around verse 20 or 21. In that great chapter, God was talking about the restoration of the nation of Israel. And he literally went back into the history and talked about how they were their natural branches. And then God broke off those natural branches because of their departing from God as God's people. And their unbelief. 
And then the Bible says in that chapter that he grafted in you and me as Gentiles to church. But then he gave us a warning. And that warning was down there in verse 21, I think. And he said, beware of this. I'm writing this to you Christians, but you better know this too. If God spared not his natural branches, Israel, you better take heed, lest he also spare thee not. Israel is going to suffer the judgment of the tribulation period because of their rejection of the plan that God had for them as a nation. And you and I will suffer the chastisement of the judgment of the paying of the price of losing the things in this life that God has for us because we forsake the same plan. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. There's a great verse in Job chapter 9 verse 4. Somebody brought it to our attention either last Thursday night or the Thursday night before. But oh, what a great verse it is. It simply says, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered. And the answer to that is nobody. Oh, the Bible's filled with examples. I could give you a hundred of them. Jacob and Jacob is the greatest one. His name means schemer. God changed his name at one point to Israel. Now, Jacob is a man that pictures you and me. I'm a Jacob. I, 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 I was, before I got right with God and where I need to be with God, I was Jacob personified. Jacob's always scheming. He's always working the angle. He's always got the thing figured out for number one. He's always working it his way. He's always going to make it. At the end of the day, he comes out with more than everybody else. But God had a plan for Jacob. And God could not use Jacob the way Jacob was. So Bible that back there, what, Genesis 32... One little verse. Well, I've read that verse so many times and put it in my own life. It just starts out by saying this. And Jacob was left alone. The day him and God went face to face. And they wrestled. They wrestled. They wrestled. Now, I'm not saying they wrestled in a double lock, or lock, ham, you know, lock and wrestled like you'd see it on TV. No, the book of Hosea tells you that their wrestling match was between two wills. You see, God had a plan and a purpose for Jacob. But Jacob had his own plan and his own purpose for his own life didn't include God. And out of that great confrontation, the Bible says God had to come down and touch the hollow of his thigh. And for the rest of Jacob's life, he limped. Sometimes God has to come down and give us a limp. Sometimes we have to go through life with a limp. That we, Jacob, every time he tried to walk, he remembered it hurt. And then he remembered why it hurt. And it kept him from never getting out of his walk with God again. And at that point in his life, when he came to the end of self, and he decided that he was going to put it away, the old name schemer Jacob, God changed his name to Israel. And from that point on, he becomes everything that God wants him to be. That's what God has for you and for me. Oh, there's a hundred stories in there. There's a hundred stories in there. There's a hundred. Look at verse 11. Back to Romans 14. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Did you ever notice that in the Bible there's two passages kind of like this? The other one's over there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. And there are passages that they're similar, but they're not the same. And the reason why they're not the same is because they're not directed to the same people. 
Over there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, picking in verse 9, it says this, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, that at, the, at every, and, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, that one's written to the unsaved world in general. But Romans chapter 14, verse 11 is written to you and me. In Philippians, they've never taken him as Lord, see? So they bow their knee and they confess to the one that all their lives they have rejected. If you're an unsaved man or an unsaved woman here this morning, I got a headline for you. If you will not bow your knee and confess to Jesus Christ as your Lord in this life, you will do it in the next life. You either accept him as a God of love and a God of grace now or at the great white throne judgment. At the great white throne judgment, when you hear the words, depart from me, ye cursed, and the everlasting fire and brimstone, prepare for the devil and his angels. Before you hear that, every unsaved man, every unsaved woman, every atheist, everybody who hated God and wanted nothing to do with God at that day will bow their knee, will stand up and confess that Jesus Christ is God and Lord, and he'll be cast into the lake of fire. See? That's for unsaved people. That's Philippians 2. Now you look at Romans 14, 11. It says, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. There ain't no reference here to him being taken as Lord, is there? You know why? Because when you got saved, you were already supposed to take him as your Lord. And you already bowed your knee and confessed to him as a son and a servant. So he says, In that day, you're going to confess to God. Confess what? You'll confess that you had everything you needed to do the job, the right Bible, the right church, the right pastor, and everybody in your life, and yet you took your life and did exactly zero for him. Confess what? That you were too busy, places to go, people to see, things to do? Confess what? Some guy or some gal was more important? Your, your sexual desires or your relationship with this world was more important than his plan? Confess what? That softball, soccer, athletics, or whatever you did was more important than what he did? My greatest fear and my greatest reality of the judgment seat of Christ is going to be this. I've heard preachers say that on that day, God's going to whip Christians. I don't believe that for a moment. I've heard him say all kinds of things. I don't believe most of it. We'll talk about next week and the week after what is going to happen. But let me put it in a context for you. Let's say the rapture took place right now. And we all stood before the judgment seat of Christ. At that moment, we're all going to have the mind of Christ. At that moment, we're all going to have our glorified bodies. At that exact twinkling of an eye moment, you now are going to understand total entirety. Not only what the plan God had for you, but you're going to understand the agony and the sacrifice that he made on the cross for you. At that exact moment, because you now have God's mind, you're going to know every person who ever prayed for you. You're going to relive every sermon you ever heard. 
You're going to relive every Bible study you ever heard. You're going to relive everything that ever God ever used to put in your life. And I, and I can't explain this. It'll be almost in a razor-sharp simulating microsecond that it'll all come to being in your perfect mind now because you have the mind of God. It'll all become crystal clear exactly what God wanted you to do for him. The agony that he paid on the cross and everything he did to get you saved and put you in the right place with the right Bible, with the right church, with the right people and everything you needed because he had a plan for you. And then right behind that thought will come the thought that you did absolutely nothing with it. And you won't be able to say, well, how would I have known? Because he's going to say, you know what? I gave you my written mind in this book and I gave you a church and a pastor who believed it. I gave you somebody that would spend whatever time you wanted. I gave you somebody who, on the worst winter days of this, uh, in, in the world, would say, we're having church. I gave you somebody that held you accountable to the judgment seat of Christ, I don't know how many times. I gave you a church. I gave you the Holy Spirit. I gave you the Bible. I gave you everything you needed. For the first time in your life, you're going to re- realize it. And you know what? The tragedy is you ought to realize it right now. There's no reason why you can't know it now. You see, up then you'll be forced to. Right here you should do it because you love him or what he did for you. Oh, it's the greatest day you and I are going to face. It's absolutely the greatest day you and I are going to face. The reality of a wasted life in view of God's plan. Selfishness versus servanthood. Living sacrifice versus living for yourself. His will versus my will. His plan versus my plan. Oh, my dear friend. You know, and, and the idea, I, I, and I think this is absolutely bothers me more than anything else. And, and this, is, this is not the, this is just the, the background. Next week and the week after, I'm going to walk you through and I'm going to show you everything that happened. I'm going to show you why sitting here today, it's an absolute tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy if you get to that judgment seat of Christ and come up short. It's a travesty. Absolute travesty. I'm going to give you next week the very simple, there's three things you got to do. Not a thousand. Three things you got to do. But we won't do it. We won't. My greatest fear personally, and I, and I, and I don't, I'm going to be honest. I don't expect anything at judgment seat of Christ. I really don't. I, I really don't. I, 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 I can't even get to that point simply because what... You see, we think we get, we think we get rewards for reading our Bible. No. You're supposed to read your Bible. We think we get rewards for winning people to Christ. No. We're supposed to win people to Christ. <laughs> we think <coughs> we think we get rewards because we come to church. You're supposed to come to church. You think we, we get rewards because you show up for Thursday night Bible study. You're supposed to be at Thursday night Bible study. That's all said and done. We're going to answer this question in the weeks to come. What do you get them for? Because I've just taken about everything that most of you thought you'd get them for. 
You say, oh, I get it for being a witness at work. Really? I thought that's what you're supposed to be. Oh, no, my friend. No, no. The, re- the key to the judgment seat of Christ is simple as a key to the Bible. It's just that people won't do it. For a lot of years, I, I, I looked at Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. And I know in the Bible, you know, at the millennial reign of Christ, we get all our rewards and our millennial inheritance. And I know the Bible talks about five crowns that we get. And we've taught those. They're on the website, and we've laid it out many, many times. But you know what? I, I thought many, many times, what is the point? What is the point of, what is the point of, because the Bible says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, that we take those crowns and we cast them at the feet of Jesus. And I thought to myself for years, what is the point of that? What, what is that all about? And then one day, I guess I just matured to the place where, where I figured it out. I don't know where God gave it to me. I remembered a verse in the Bible, I think it's in Colossians, where it simply said all things were made by him and for him. And by him all things consist. And then it hit me. The ultimate experience for me as a Christian, when I get any rewards, any crowns, and everything that I have, and I enjoy them for a thousand years, the ultimate way it's got to go is it has to go back to the one who ultimately paid the price for me to have them. And then I walk up to that crown on that throne with whatever I have, and I look into those eyes, and I see that smile. You see, I don't want a lot of things in life. I don't want riches. I, I don't want a big house. Uh, I don't want new fancy cars. I'm a pretty simple guy. My life was changed one time about, oh, I don't know, 1969, I think it was, when I stood in review and watched a soldier from Vietnam get the Congressional Medal of Honor. And I'll never forget it in that day. And I didn't think about the spiritual implications of that day. But I know I had goose pimples up one side, down the other, and there wasn't a guy on that parade field that wasn't feeling just like I felt. I mean, here it was, the whole fort assembled out, platoon, platoon, company, company, down the line. The band was playing. And uh, all the baby went in review. And the guy lined up, and everybody stopped. The band stopped, and the <coughs> commanding general come up, and, and all everybody, there must have been 5,000 guys out there. And he read, this, read the guy's name, and out of that long crowd down the line, that guy came out and walked up to that thing, front, right up the front of that thing, in front of everybody. The general stood up there, and the two aides went down with him, and the general there, and he read that citation, what that guy had did in Vietnam to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. At about that point in time, they opened up that black velvet box, and they took out that medal, and they put it around that soldier's neck. I'll tell you what, I'm getting goose pimples right now just talking about it, but I was just ecstatic. I had never seen anything in my life, and I thought to myself, wow, that is probably the greatest experience I've ever had in my life. And he walked back up, and that, you know, once you get the Congressional Medal of Honor, officers, you don't salute officers. They now salute you. You never have to salute another officer again. I don't care if he's a president. I don't care if he's a five-star general. They now have to salute you. And boy, that was, that was something. I mean, our old guy was tough, tough old guy, boy. And he put that medal on him after he read that citation. And that soldier just stood there like a stone monument, boy. And that general took one step back, and he saluted that sergeant. 
And he saluted him, then he shook his hand, boy, and the band started playing Stars and Stripes Forever. And I'll tell you what, man, I wasn't even unsaved then, but I was raptured. I don't want much in life. I don't want a big building. All I want, all I want is when my day comes, I don't want the crowns, I don't want the rewards, I don't want the inheritance. All I want is to stand there before him and have him look down at me and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want to take that old sword out and it'll have some nicks on it. It'll have some parts broken out of it. It'll be scarred and it'll be, it'll be scoured from the battles of this life. But I just want to lay it at his feet and say, there it is. I didn't do it right. I didn't do it perfect. But honest to God, you know my heart. I did it the best way I know how. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Whew. I'm telling you, folks, it's all about him. Ever been to a birthday party? Ever go to a birthday party when a lot of people showed up and you got miscommunicated or didn't know what was going on and you're the only one that showed up and didn't bring a gift? Thank you for that testimony. No, I'm embarrassed. Now, for me, I'd just say, it's okay. But my wife, she'd be totally embarrassed. She'd got to run down to, you know, to the second-hand store I mean, and get, some, get a card, you know, put whatever in it. You, and, and most of you women are the same way. Guys don't think about that. But you know what? How embarrassed you would be. You show up to the party and everybody's got presents over there and you have to say, hey, how are you? Good deal. What, what are we eating? <laughs> think what it would be like when you stand before the creator of the universe. You understand everything that he's done for you, everything that he's given you. We take so much for granted in our lives. While we've been sitting here not even quite an hour, or a little, almost an hour, and not one of us stopped and gave thanks for the breath that came in out of our lungs all the time we were here. We take it for granted. You'll go home and eat your little meal or go to a restaurant, never bow your head over that food and thank God for it, but we take it for granted. You'll put those little kids to bed tonight and you'll tuck them in, and not one of you will read the Bible with them or pray with them. You know why? Because you take them for granted. We'll get up in the morning and go through the rest of our day, and we'll never say one word to our Heavenly Father, Bible with them or pray with them. You know why? Because you take them for granted. We'll get up in the morning and go through the rest of our day, and we'll never say one word to our Heavenly Father after all the good things He's done for you and for me. You know why? Because we take Him for granted. See, this isn't about me and you. It's about you and Him. It's about you understanding all that he's done for you, what it will be in that day when you stand, when everybody, when everybody takes their crowns and they walk up and look and they smile and he smiles and they just throw those things at his feet. There's a song in your hymnal. We know we're singing. But it's a great song. It's on page 418. And it simply says the name of it. And whoever wrote it understood much more about the Bible than we do. It simply says, the title, And Must I Go and Empty-Handed. Must I go and empty-handed. Thus, my dear, 
Redeemer meet. Not one day of service give him. Lay no trophy at his feet. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Oh, must I empty-handed go? The day for you and for me, short-term, for us, the day of Jesus Christ, and the day that we stand before him and give an account of our liberty, give an account of did we figure out the plan that he had for us and did we do it, or do we just lose it in all of the things that we're doing in our world and our lives? Sinner, son, and servant. You're judged at Calvary as a sinner. When you get saved, you're no longer a sinner. You're now his son, and he deals with you as a son. But oh, in that day, at the great judgment seat of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ, he'll judge you as a servant, as a steward. For the things that he's entrusted to me and you, in this church, in your life, with your families, and what you've done with them. Now, after a message like this, let me say this to you. It doesn't matter where you start. It doesn't. God, unlike us, never looks over his shoulder at the mistakes we've made. Once you got saved and once you've confessed where you're at with God, it's a clean slate. And you could sit here today with absolutely nothing in your hand. And yet, I'm telling you, all it takes is an attitude adjustment of your heart and your life to be what God wants you to be. And you can redeem the time. One of the greatest concepts, somebody asked it a couple of weeks ago, redeeming the time, taking the time that God has that we have wasted and God allowing us to redeem it. Oh, my friend, the judgment seat of Christ is not about what we think we do to get rewards. It's basically built on three separate things. Next week, I'm going to show you what they are. I'm going to, I'm going to leave no stone unturned. There's going to be nobody in this church, nobody in this church that's ever going to point their finger and say, well, nobody ever told me about it. I like my job as agitator, but I'm never going to let you just become a bunch of old wet clothes just laying in the soap in the water. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. And it's not my nature. I'm not a very confrontational person. I hate confrontation. I really do. But I'd rather have a confrontation with you than one with him up there for not doing my job. It's just that simple. And then the next week after that, I'm going to give you even the greatest thing that you could ever, ever want. Because God's going to ask some questions at that judgment seat of Christ. There are certain things that he's going to ask you. It's like if you had to go take a test tomorrow. The only difference is the answers to the questions are in his book. And I'm going to show you the third week the questions God's going to ask you with the judgment seat of Christ. There'll be no reason. There'll be absolutely no reason for you not to have everything that God has for you other than the fact you just don't want to. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
Now, maybe you're here this morning and maybe you've never trusted Christ as your own personal Savior. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't know for sure if you died right now where you'd spend eternity. I want to pray here in just a moment and, and we'll be done, but I, I just feel the, the burden by the Holy Spirit of God not to, not to not do this today because maybe there's somebody here that does not know for sure. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let me ask you a question. If you're here this morning and you're a young man or a young lady, a mom and dad, and you're not sure if you died right now where you'd spend eternity, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you just let me pray for you? Would you just put your hand up and say, Bob, here's my hand. I'm not sure I'm saved. Just let me see it and put it back down. Anybody at all? Maybe we're all saved. I don't know. Here's my hand. Well, let me ask you this question then. And I've never really done this before. Is there somebody here today that says, Bob, I'm saved. And I know for sure that I'm going to heaven. But, Bob, I know that I got to change some things in my life to be everything God wants me to be. And I know we all can all say that, but I'm talking about in relationship to the judgment seat of Christ. And I want you to pray for me that God will give me the wisdom, the grace, and I'll get whatever help I need to get my line, my heart back on track with God. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Here's my hand. Pray for me. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Put them back down. I see them. God bless you. Good. Good. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee and praise Thee for the Lord Jesus. Thank You, first of all, Father, for getting me through this morning. Our Lord, thank You for, as You always are, always come through. And Lord, it's probably better that I, I was restrained with what I had today to be able to speak for what I had to say. But your wisdom is infinite. And thank you for all that you do. But I pray for these, my people. I love them very much, and I know that so many of them want to do what's right. And I pray, Father, today that you'll just look in the hearts of each one here. And Lord, I pray that you'll just do what only you can do. And that you'll, you'll, you'll just bless this church so incredibly. And Lord, uh, it's a thing where it's only going to be as strong as the individual people who, who understand what God has got for them. And Lord, I pray today that you'll just continue to, to work in the midst of this church. Help me as a pastor to be a better pastor every day, a better teacher, a better preacher. And Lord, help me be, be a better person. Well, Lord, help us together as we strive to fulfill the mission of this church. May each one here strive to fulfill their individual mission. And Lord, let everybody know that, boy, I'll sit down with anybody in this place and help put a plan together to help get them where they want to go. That's what it's really all about. And as we take today and we go through 14, chapter 14, and we talk about the judgment seat of Christ and we take the time to talk about it in its entirety next week and the week after, Help us build in our own lives. Next week is going to be so key. It's going to give everybody the basic, fundamental things they got to simply do. Help us, Father, in all that we do. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Bless, uh, Lord, uh, all the different endeavors this week and all that we're going to do. And 